jump in just yet because here's what I want us to do. I want us, I want to give us some context. I want to kind of set the stage. Um, once we get to Acts 18, I want us to see what happened in Acts 1 to 17 because I think it's important in understanding and getting a context for Acts 18. Are you cool with that? Everybody's good? All right. You can nod your heads, by the way. That's legal at Live Oak, okay? Let's, uh, here's the other thing I want to do. Let's talk about some goals. I want to set a goal for the morning because I don't want to get to the end of our time and you leave and you look at each other and go, what just happened? What was that? What am I supposed to take away from that? So I want to tell you what I want you to take away from this. And I want to do it in a setting of three separate goals. The first goal is what I believe to be the goal of God. Like when all is said and done, I think God's ultimate goal is found in Psalm 67. Where you see the writer of that psalm, they say, May the peoples praise him. May all the peoples praise him. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. So when it's all said and done, I think the ultimate goal of God and his whole purpose in creating us is so that we could praise him. And so that not only we, but all the nations could, could praise him. The nations and the people, that's a common theme throughout scripture. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that's a little self-serving, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's okay, because if God wanted us to worship anybody else, he would then cease to be God. It would be kind of pointless. So it's a good thing to be self-serving if you're God, but for us it's otherwise. Another goal that I believe that God has given us, so that was God's goal for himself. The goal that I believe God has given us through Jesus is found in Matthew 28. Uh, If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard this verse. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus comes back and he says, listen, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples, go and make followers or apprentices or students and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you come from a Catholic background, it sounds very familiar to you. Baptize them and then teach them. So I want you to think about that verse just a little bit differently. When Jesus says baptize, most of us think of like baptize, water, down, get wet. I want you to think of that word as immerse. It's what the word means, either a physical immersion in water or a very spiritual, metaphorical immersion in immersing ourselves in who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did and what he asked us to do. So Jesus said, go and make disciples and immerse them either physically in water or maybe he even meant immerse them in my words and in my teachings and the things that I did. Immerse them in that and then go and teach other people to do what I've taught you to do. I think that's God's goal for us is to go and make disciples, to immerse other people, to baptize them, and to teach. I think that's God's goal for us. Now, our short-term goal for this morning, here's what I'd like for us to accomplish. I'd like for us to be able to see what our talents and our skills and our gifts are. And then I want you tomorrow, Monday, to be able to take those skills and those talents and let that be your mission. Let that be your mission strategy. I want you to go and make disciples through your job. That's our goal this morning. Now, let me set the context of Acts 1 through 17. Jesus is kind of largely uh, on display in Acts 1. He's just come off of the Gospels where we've read about his life and his death and his subsequent resurrection. So he actually came back from the dead, which is a little hard to muster, but he did it. 
And so now he's coming back, and he's got this group of followers, kind of led by Peter. And, and, and they're a little bit bum-fuzzled, because they look and they see that Jesus was dead, and now he's not, and he's in front of them. And they're trying to put the pieces together. And then he stays for a little while, teaches about the kingdom of God, and then he goes again. In Acts 1, it says he ascends. And so now you've got a church that's really confused. And so they start to get together on a regular basis. And Peter's teaching. Maybe some others are teaching. They're praying. And then in chapter 2, something very bizarre happens, as if things have not been bizarre enough. As they're praying as a church, and it's just a small group of people, God decides to do something with his spiritual presence, he calls the Holy Spirit, and kind of infuses the group with this Holy Spirit and, and, and the group just starts to do some weird things. They start speaking in different languages and like tongues of fire on their shoulder. And it's just really bizarre. So those of you who are in small groups during the week, can you imagine in your small group if all of a sudden you looked over and like your buddy who you've been in small group with for the last three weeks, there's like a tongue of fire on his shoulder? Would you say something? You got a tongue of fire on your shoulder. You know, it's a little bit weird. And so this stuff starts happening. And after that happened, the church begins to grow. And it becomes in kind of an infancy stage and grows and grows and grows. It's not crazy yet, although there are some big numbers. But then what happens, and this never happens anywhere else. By the way, if this is your first time to church, don't worry because this doesn't happen anymore in the church. But there's actually a quarrel in the church. There, there's, there's a group of people bickering with another group of people in the church. But don't worry, that doesn't happen anymore because we're all perfect now. So... They, they, they start bickering, and so it's one group of widows, it's a, widows from a Jewish background, and they're kind of infighting with another group of widows from a more Greco-Roman background. So, the apostles, and we've got a great thing to learn from this as a church. The apostles, what they decide to do is they make a statement and basically say, listen, we don't have time to take care of this. We're studying, we're teaching, we're traveling, we're doing these other things. We don't have time to do this, so what we're going to do is we're going to raise you up to do it. That is an incredible lesson for us as a church. It's one of the reasons that I'm so thankful that we give our staff and we probably ought to give our elders some time off just to step back and breathe because they've got primary responsibilities in the church. And this was put on display. So what they did is they actually raised up what they call deacons, which is literally just a word that means servant. That's all they do. They don't vote. Uh, they, they don't necessarily even meet. They just serve. So their first question is, how can I serve you? And so out of these group of men that they raised up as deacons, one of them was named Stephen. He actually ended up getting put on a pedestal in front of a large group of very important leaders. And when he was on that pedestal, he starts teaching about this Jesus who he was following, who's physically no longer here, but his spirit obviously is doing something. And so he starts teaching and telling these people about this Jesus. It causes a riot. They end up killing Stephen. And the, 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 uh, the religious leader who gave his permission for them to kill Stephen is a guy named Saul. And so this guy now comes into the foreground. This was like the Jew of all Jews. He was a religious leader. He was a powerhouse. And, and after that had happened, he was on his way into a, uh, Syria to a city called Damascus, still around today. So he was walking to Damascus, Syria. God came down and did something very similar to him that he did to that small church back in Acts 2. Although to him, he made him blind. He could literally, physically couldn't see. And he transformed his heart. And now Paul, most of us know about Jesus Christ because of what Paul did in his writings and his teachings. So God took this guy who was 100% opposed to his son Jesus, transformed him. And now many of us believe in, the, in Jesus the Christ simply because of Paul's transformation. So that happens. Paul realizes, now I can't just keep this to me. 
So he goes out on what he calls missions, okay? Businesses go on missions. Football teams go on missions. Military goes on missions. We all go on missions of some type. So he goes on a mission. It's called his first missionary journey in the text. And it's around Acts 13 to 15. He takes a buddy of his Barnabas, and they start traveling all over the Greco-Roman world. Start teaching about Jesus, raising up people, starting small little churches in homes usually. And then he comes back, and then in another feat that was so awkward and odd, there's another spat and another bickering between two people. This time Paul and his buddy Barnabas about another guy named John Mark. Barnabas wants to keep him with him. Paul wants to let him go. And so Barnabas takes John Mark. They go off traveling together on missionary journeys. They just agree to disagree. It's okay. And Paul takes a guy named Silas, and they go off. This time while they're traveling, they land in the city of Corinth. That takes us to Acts 18. So let's get in the text. Acts 18, 1 through 3. After this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was an emperor of Rome at this time, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Interesting. We need to understand, you can see I've bolded and italicized some of these words on the screen. We need to understand that, that, that Paul was not actually a full-time vocational minister, although there is room for that. Paul actually gives license for that to happen, but Paul was actually kind of a quasi-businessman. And he ended up meeting these other people, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were also business people, had a small business in this town of Corinth. So I want you to get the setting where they're in, Corinth. I want you to understand that. They had moved from Rome because they got ousted by Claudius. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then they moved to Corinth, which is actually geographically on what they call an isthmus of land. It's like this little neck of land, maybe three to six miles wide. And it connects two larger pieces of body and separates two bodies of water. And in this case, Corinth separated the body of water that leads to Asia from the body of water that leads to what we now know as Europe or Italy or Rome back in the day. And so they're on this center island. So what you have is you have, it's a political, everybody has to come through Rome if they want to get down to the Southland. If merchandise wants to get from Asia to Europe, the easiest way is to take it right through Corinth, put it on land, take it to another ship on the other side, and take it to, uh, to Rome or to Europe, and vice versa. So it is a commercial center. It's probably a political outpost of Rome. About 200,000 people in the ancient city. And what's bizarre, let's say that Rome is like New York City of today. Kind of the center of the known world. One of the largest city, uh, cities in the world. Uh, huge center of every kind. Multi-domain. So let's say that Rome is New York City. I would classify Corinth to be San Francisco. Why? It's because it's a major hotbed of, of the nations, San Francisco is. Pretty large city, San Francisco is. Deeply rooted commercial center, San Francisco is. But it also had an element. A lot of times when you hear about San Francisco, and I don't know why this is, because there are so many other cities that deal with this, but you start to uh, uh, think about morality issues. We tend to hear of San Francisco involved in morality issues a lot more than most, whether they be heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it might be. Corinth went through some things that were very similar. It had a temple, this temple you see on the screen, to the goddess Aphrodite, who was actually the goddess of love and war. That strike anybody weird? Love, war, make love, not, it's just weird to me. But anyway, she was the goddess of love and war. And what they did in Corinth to worship this goddess of Aphrodite, needless to say, it's where we get our word aphrodisiac from, to actually worship this goddess what they would do is women would come to the temple and they would be friendly with strange men. For you adults in the room, you catch my drift. 
and they would do it for money. And that's literally how they worshipped this goddess of love and war. This was in Corinth. So this is where Aquila and Priscilla lived. This is where Paul and Silas had come to, and they were merging together. Now, Aquila, the text says that he was a Jew. Some of you may be from Jewish backgrounds. I love Jewish culture. I absolutely love it. I think if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, I think it's crucial that you begin to study Jewish culture. Why? Jesus was a Jew, and he was a great Jew. And what do I mean by that is that he held to many of the customs. He did a lot of the learning. He himself was a rabbi, the top of the top, the cream of the Jewish culture. We've got a, a, a Jewish family here in the church. Mr. Asher, a few months ago, around Easter, taught those of us who wanted to come the different elements of the Passover. And it's fascinating, the different elements they have set out for the Jewish culture is littered with elements and tassels and, and double meanings and all of this stuff. And so Aquila grew up in this. It also tell us, tells us that as a Jewish boy, he probably did a lot of learning. Most Jewish boys in their infancy would grow up studying what they called Torah. Now, it just so happens you're probably holding part of it in your hand. It's the first five books of the Bible. Most Jewish boys grew up studying and even sometimes memorizing that. There are some Jewish students who have the entire Old Testament memorized. Ouch. Think about that. From Genesis, not only to the end to Deuteronomy, but to the end to Malachi, they've got it all memorized. In the Jewish culture, they took learning very seriously. So we can assume that Aquila was a great learned person and probably his wife uh, Priscilla. And we see evidence of that later when they took Apollos to the side and they taught him. And so we can also assume that Aquila probably had a trade of some sort. That's how he got into tent making. All Jewish boys had a trade. Nobody went solely for for the position of rabbi without knowing what to do outside that position. In fact, many rabbis had jobs themselves. And so it was not unusual at all for a full-time rabbi also to have a job to be interacted and interjected into the marketplace. So here's a couple of things about Priscilla and Aquila. Take a look back at your text as I reference these things so you can understand where I see these in the text. One of the things I believe about Priscilla and Aquila is they knew who they were, but they subsequently knew who they were not. They knew that they were not full-time vocational ministry people. They knew they were not medical doctors. They knew they were not engineers. They knew they were not food service industry people. They were tent makers. That's what they did. The lesson that I find from this is we need to stop looking at other people and saying, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that skill. No. That's why God's giving you the skill that he's given you. They knew who they were, and they knew who they were not. They were tent makers. They were good at at leather making, sewing, cutting, designing, uh, hemming, mending. That was their business. That's what they did. And Christ was an outflow of that. They were small business proprietors. I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but I'm going to tell you I'm going to go off on it so at the end you don't go, man, he really goes off on a lot of tangents. I'm well aware of it. So in this particular tangent, what I see in the text is that they ran a small business. They were business people, but I don't know that it was necessarily a Christian business. What do I mean by that? I think they were just good at making tents. So I think they just made tents. I don't know that they promoted their business as a Christian tent-making business. I think it was just a tent-making business, and they lived out the principles of Christ through their business. My point in saying that is I don't know that Jesus was ever meant for us to be a marketing tool. I'm not going to go a whole lot deeper into that. You can kind of make your own inference and learn what you need to learn from that. But I really don't think, in my business, what I do from Monday through Friday, 
I, I, I try not to wear this stuff on my chest. I try to just be Jesus in what I do. And I think that's what Priscilla and Aquila did with their job. I don't know that they had uh, Christian emblems around them. They may have. I just don't see it in the text. But what I do see is them being faithful tent makers. They were mingling with commoners. They were mingling with soldiers. They were mingling with politicians. They were meeting with Corinth locals. They were meeting with uh, people who were all over the world. They were traveling through all because of the outlet of their business. They were also um, pledged themselves to Jesus Christ. We know that because when it says that Claudius exiled people out of Rome, what ended up happening when Claudius was emperor of Rome, he'd seen that the Jews were starting to kind of go a little crazy. And he said, even through a a Jewish historian, that uh, he... He was starting to see how the Jews were uprising in the name of Christus, is what it says in the Jewish history. And we take that inference to mean Christ. And so instead of dealing with them in the city, he just ex- uh, exiled them and sent them out of Rome, and they ended up in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila, from the text we see even here in Romans and other parts of the New Testament, that they were committed to their business, they, they knew their skills, they knew their talents, they were well aware of them, and they were also committed to their Christ. And they took that... And they began to impact the society that was around them. They didn't have a separate church strategy. Their business was their strategy. One of the texts in the Old Testament, I told you we'd flick back there periodically. Jeremiah 29. It's one of my favorite texts when we're looking at understanding the impact that we have on society. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's talking to a group of exiles here. Look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply. I love that word. Multiply yourselves. Spread out and do not decrease. And this is my favorite. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray and beg and plead with the Lord on its behalf. Let me ask you, Monday through Friday, whether you're in school, whether you're retired, whether you've got a job or you don't have a job, are you going hard after looking out for the welfare of Bluffton or Hilton Head? Is that on your mind on Monday morning when you wake up? Do you long for the welfare of this city? Do you drive around this city and long for its welfare? Or do we drive around the city and gripe and grumble because the traffic's too heavy on a Saturday afternoon going onto the island? Jeremiah, using the inspiration of God, says to seek the welfare of the city. Priscilla and Aquila sought the welfare of the city through their trade. I'm not saying that they were doing these dynamic projects. I meant they were just making great tents. So they were looking out for the welfare of the the consumer, of the customer, of the city, of the people around them by making great tents that were excellent at what they did because they were motivated by Christ. They were motivated to spread and to introduce other people to Christ. We don't see any evidence in the text. We do with other people, but we don't with them to see where their motivation was anything other than Christ. We don't see where their motivation was money. We don't see where their motivation was promotion. We don't see pension. We don't see any of that. We see that their motivation was to spread and introduce this person of Christ they follow. If you look at Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember that story in Acts, where they had gone to sell some of their land, they had told the elders that they were going to give a certain amount, and they ended up withholding some, and they died. (laughs) Ouch. Their motivation was not Christ. If you look at Judas, the guy who betrayed Christ and gave him up, his motivation was money. It's not the motivation of Priscilla and Aquila. 
I don't think that's our motivation. I don't think that needs to be our motivation. Sure, we need money to, to live and exist on, but God provides for all of our needs, doesn't he? Now, before you go thinking, man, you are like super holy God. Do you really believe that? I, I do, but I don't know that I always live it. Because that's a hard one. I mean, seriously, God provides for all of your needs, so I don't even need to, like, worry about it. No, you don't. You need to work. Motivation for Priscilla and Aquila was that the peoples may praise him. May all the peoples praise him. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. I wonder if the motivation for Priscilla and Aquila was to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them. I wonder if the motivation for them was when Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I wonder if their motivation was found in Matthew 15 when it said about Jesus that great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet and they healed him so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking. They saw the crippled that were healthy, the lame were now walking, the blind were seeing, and they glorified God of Israel. I wonder if that's their motivation. And then the money and the promotion and all that just kind of comes in its due time. There's another motivation I'd like to plant inside of you for those who are currently working or going to school or whatever you fill your Monday through Friday with. What if one day one of your colleagues came up and said, hey, what does Christ look like as a food line cook at Hardee's? Hey, what does Christ look like as the guy who fills asphalt working for the DOT? Hey, colleague, friend, you coworker of mine, what does Christ look like uh, as the toll booth worker, as the engineer down the street. Hey, what does Christ look like as the uh, estate attorney? Maybe this is a goal that we should set for ourselves. What if we could come back to them like Paul came to the people who followed him in 1 Corinthians 4, and he said, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ, and I urge you, imitate me. Do you ever think you could get to the point where somebody were to look at you and say, hey, what does Christ look like as a, and you fill in the blank, and you were to respond, looks a lot like me. Just watch my life, and you'll see glimpses of the Christ life. Now, before we start thinking that that's an arrogant place to be, Paul himself said it. And I want you to think about this in a very real context. Ashley and I have three children, a girl and two boys. And a couple weeks ago, uh, I came home and Ashley said, I went and bought the boys gym shorts today. Now, I'm going to give you a little intimate detail of my life, but you promise not to tell anybody else. This is just between us, okay? But I, I, when I go to bed at night, I just wear gym shorts, all right? I know what you're thinking. Man, ripped body, right? No problem. That's right. That's right. Talk to my wife about it. She's got to deal with it. But I wear gym shorts when I go to bed. A couple weeks ago, I come home, and Ashley said, I went and bought the boys' gym shorts today. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, I bought it for them because they wanted to be just like you. They wanted to wear gym shorts to bed because their dad wears gym shorts to bed. What if a coworker comes in and starts doing their job just like you because they want to be just like you because you want to be just like Christ. Imitate me, Paul said, because I'm imitating Christ. 
the greatest honor that my boys could do for me is in 10, 20, 30 years. If they did it now, I'd go nuts. This would be awesome. I just don't know that they're there yet. But in 10, 20, 30 years, if if they were in an exchange with a buddy or a friend or somebody, and they said, hey, I want to meet your dad someday. What's he like? And one of my boys said, you don't really need to meet him. I'm just like him. That needs to be our goal in our jobs, is to be just like Christ in what we do. For Priscilla and Aquila, their job was their access. It was their ticket to the world. Here's what we uh, sometimes forget about our call to Christ, to be pledged to Christ, to walk with Christ, to be an apprentice of Christ, is that it is a worldwide calling. Guys, it is beyond this church. And for us to be myopic to where all we see is this church and we lose sight of the non-church, of the people who are not a part of our church or the church, locally and globally, then our faith in Christ and our walk with Christ becomes, in a medical term, it's necrotic. It starts to die. The tissue just starts to die. This is great, but this isn't all. Priscilla and Aquila, do you realize their business did not take place on Sunday mornings? Their business took place throughout the week. And I don't even know when they met as a church, but I do know they met in their home. We see that at the end of Romans 16. They met in their home, so it wasn't a a huge priority to start developing these big things around the church. They probably just thought, we just need to be getting together on a regular basis. Because the main part of life happens Monday through Friday or Saturday or whenever you work. That's the main part of our existence. Serving Jesus Christ is a worldwide calling. It's local. It's global. Acts 1.8, Jesus said very clearly, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. One of my favorite texts on this is in Isaiah 49.6. It's where God comes to the prophet and he says, my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up just the tribes of Jacob. Let me translate. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant just in Bluffton. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvations to the end of the earth. Do you know who he's talking to? Just the elders and the staff. That's all. No. He's talking to me. He's talking, he's talking to you. To the ends of the earth. Not here, but here also. It is a worldwide calling. Locally, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in America, somewhere around 70 to 90%, depending on where you live, of people that live in this country are not a part of a church on a regular basis. And it's just a reality. It's a statement of fact. There's great documentation for that. So if most of the people that exist in society, in fact, most of them that do not currently uh, pledge themselves to Christ, walk with Christ, apprentice themselves under Christ, if they're not here... Why do we build our strategy for introducing them to Christ here? Wouldn't it make more sense for God to use our Monday through Friday and our Monday through Saturday as the strategy for introducing himself to them? Doesn't that make more sense? Who who do you more desperately want to get Christ? The people you're sitting next to right now? Or the people that you are working next to tomorrow. And the people that you're frustrated with because they took the last pot of coffee on Tuesday. 
your job, your talent, your skill, whatever it is. And I'm going to speak to different groups here in just a second. Retired, stay-at-home moms, and those who are out of work. So just hang on because you're all a part of this, and I'm going to show you how. You know, the last few weeks we've been talking about this crazy love story. What if, add a twist of craziness to this, what if the crazy love story that Michael's been prompting us to pray for for the last couple of weeks is nothing more than you being faithful Monday through Friday? What if it's nothing more than you waking up tomorrow instead of going, oh, it's Monday, and saying, thank God, it's Monday. In the business I work in, I'm in and out of offices all day long, mainly in the medical field. And inevitably, what's going to happen tomorrow morning is I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to say, how was your weekend? And they're going to go, it's Monday. Oh, it's a typical Monday. And I'll probably hear that at least 16 times tomorrow. What if that wasn't our attitude at all? What if it was a privilege to be there on Monday? What if we were faithful and intentional with our work? Now, here's the other part of this. I talked about local. This is the one that gets my blood pumping It's the global piece of this. God has called us to represent him and to introduce him to people here and there. Locally and globally. And nobody is excluded and nobody has the option to opt out. Now that's tough, but it's reality. 60% of the unreached people, the people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, are living behind the closed doors of a protective government. So if you go on your visa sheet and write, missionary... They will not let you in. But if you write on your sheet, engineer, builder, chef, whatever you want to put in there, 100% of the people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ are impacted somehow by what you do and are involved somehow in commerce, in the marketplace. Christ has access, but it's through us and the skills and the gifts that we have. Last couple of months, there's been some, some guys here talking about uh, strategy for missions in our church. What does missions look like? And we're trying to set all that and define it and lay out uh, values and objectives and missions and visions and all that stuff. What if the mission of our church, this could save a lot of time, guys. Seriously, it could save a ton of time. What if the mission of our church was nothing more locally than you taking Jesus to your workplace? What if your talent, what if your skill, what if your job was our mission strategy as a church? I want you to take a look real quick, just two and a half minutes. Um, For the last three or four years, Ashley and I and some friends around the country have been involved globally in a country called Nigeria. So if you ever receive an email from somebody from Nigeria, accept it. I mean, seriously, they're offering you a ton of money. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a total scam, and it comes right out of the heart of Nigeria. But the people keep us going back because we love them. We love them and they love us. And we keep going back to the same place every year. And and I think if you read the newsletter this year, Michael's going with me in September. We're going to head back to the same place. We're going to see the same people. And it's in an effort to take and to introduce Christ to a group of people who've never, ever heard about him. That your business, that your school, that what you do during the week is going to be your mission. That's an option. It's an opportunity there for you. And I think it's a faithful option. I think it's an obedient option. But if you do that, a couple of quick cautions. And they're all stemmed from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, most of you have heard of a guy named Mahatma Gandhi. 
his actions transformed India. He wasn't classified as a Christian, but he meditated on the Sermon on the Mount frequently. So Jesus had as much to do with India, transformation of India as one man that we know as Gandhi. The transformation of where you work and of your job and all of these things, that does not mean that you come in on a Monday draped with religious garb and start passing out tracts. What it does mean is that you are excellent in what you do. Be the best. Don't be arrogant, but be the best at what you do. Because God is excellent. Be filled with integrity. Sermon on the Mount talks about the house that's built on sand, the house that's built on rock. The one on rock stands. Be, be filled with integrity. Be filled with love. Love your enemies. Love the customer that drives you nuts. Love the patient that drives you up the wall. Love the client that you can't stand to be around. Be careful in how you spend what you make. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Be intentional in your conversation, but please don't be weird. Just be you, unless you are weird, and that's okay. But just be you. And talk about the Jesus you know when it comes up in that conversation because eventually you're going to be so excellent and filled in integrity and filled with love that they're going to ask. And be lifelong learners. Jesus said hunger and thirst for righteousness. Leave your fundamentalist ideas at home. Okay? The prayer in school may be a great thing, but listen, do we really need to argue about that kind of stuff? Let's just be Christ where we're at. And here's one phrase that I'm going to ask us to retire and put away. Some of you may not want to. That's your choice. But I'm just going to ask you to. The phrase, I wish I worked in a Christian environment. I wish you didn't. Listen, I talked to Michael this week. And the one thing that he and I talked about is I was talking to him about this part of the message. And he reminded me of the story a couple months ago with the guy on the golf course from Boston. Where the guy asked him about the third hole, what do you do? And to a pastor, that's like, he don't want to get asked that question because as soon as he tells them, everybody goes weird. I mean, as soon as the word pastor comes out, the cussing, stop cussing. The, 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 the womanizers start womanizing, stop womanizing. I mean, everything, just go. And all of a sudden, you have this holy, angelic individual in front of you who's never done any wrong. Michael would long for the access and the relationships that you have. But he may never get as long as he's a pastor. But you have him. So be faithful. Stay-at-home moms, you've got disciples at home. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows up, he won't stray far from it. Train your children. They are more important disciples, your children are, than the other people you'll come in contact with. Does the text say, what is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What is it to a man if he gains all these friends outside but loses his children? To those who are retired, I know I'm the young guy and I don't really have the perspective you have and I really don't. You guys have such wisdom and experience. Please don't let that sit on the shelf there are people in here who want to start business they want to start families they want to start these things 
and they don't necessarily want to come asking, but they desperately want your wisdom. So maybe whatever it is you do, instead of hanging it up and going and doing whatever you do, maybe you start spending some time with some younger guys and ladies like me and teaching us how to do what you did. For those of you who are out of work, I'm sorry that you're out of work. I can't imagine the weight that you feel. The only thing I have to offer is to be the most Christ-like unemployed person that's ever walked the face of the earth and start volunteering your skills like crazy and just serve and give and you will be of greater faith than anybody in the room because you're trusting God with nothing. Your busyness, your business, whatever occupies your time, whatever you're skilled at, will press us on to the goal and ultimately lead to the point where all the nations and all the peoples will praise Him. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. And it will press us onto the goal that God has given us to go and make disciples of all nations. Do you love the Iranian? Do you love the person from Iraq? Do you love the person from Venezuela as much as you love the person next door? Or in the next seat? That's the mandate from Christ. So may you wake up tomorrow morning and may you declare the goal of God to have all the peoples praise Him, for the nations to be glad and sing for joy. And may you wake up in the morning and say, thank God, it's Monday. Let's pray. God, we love you. We are so thankful that you've given us access to people like you've given us. We praise you for giving us a church that encourages us and motivates us to be Christ to the people around us. God, don't leave us. Don't forsake us. You promised that you never will. And we trust that. God, I pray especially for the people who don't have work right now. I pray for the people who are retired, and I pray for the moms who stay home, or even the dads who stay home, full-time raising kids. And I pray that you would empower them with your Holy Spirit in a way that is unexplainable. And then in days or weeks or months, they'll be able to come back and report to the church, you are faithful even when I was not. We love you. Please use us. In Jesus' name, amen.